Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. I loved reading about the Three Maidens statue, and the article from the Smithsonian Magazine was especially interesting. I also enjoyed exploring the website for the Women's Engineering Society, and it was fascinating reading about the life of Margaret Robotham. Anyway, before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening to this podcast for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now let's dive into episode 8. Don't call it hacky sack. Social Sciences Born on June 24, 1585 in London, England, Hastings Rashdell, a historian, theologian, and philosopher, is best known for a book he wrote in 1907, The Theory of Good and Evil. Educated at Harrow, an expensive boarding school for boys, Rashdell went on to receive a scholarship to the New College Oxford, where he won the Chancellor's Prize for an essay he wrote on the history of medieval universities in 1883. After completing his studies, Rashdell became a lecturer at St. David's University College, now the University of Wales, before moving to Durham University to teach theology. In 1889, he was first appointed a fellow of Hartford College, then of New College Oxford in 1895. In 1901, he received his Doctorate of Letters from New College Oxford, which is a higher level of a doctorate degree. Throughout his life, he would hold several positions, including a canon of Hereford Cathedral, president of the Aristotelian Society, and dean of Carlisle, a position he held from 1917 to 1924. While Rashdale was foremost a theologian, he was also a philosopher who devised the term ideal utilitarianism, which he used to distinguish from the traditional hedonistic utilitarianism it replaced. This philosophy, according to a book by Anthony Skelton titled Ideal Utilitarianism, Rashdale and More, states that the only fundamental requirement of morality is to promote a plurality of intrinsic goods for all those capable of possessing them. Basically, Rashdale believed that the morality of an action, rule, policy, or institution was due to the goodness it resulted in. This was determined by the sum total of virtue, knowledge, and pleasure in that order. Rashdale also had a moral view consisting of two fundamentals. According to a section written by Anthony Skelton in the International Encyclopedia of Ethics, the first, in quotes, was that the acts are right or wrong according as they do or do not tend to promote the greatest quantity of good, end quote. The second was his belief that there were three goods, intellectual activities, pleasure, and virtue, which is loving what is intrinsically good. For those who are interested in reading his two most famous books, The Medieval University Book and The Theory of Good and Evil, they can both be found on the Hathi Trust website at catalog 
www.hathitrust.org. That's H-A-T-H-I-T-R-U-S-T. The direct link to each book can be found at my website as well at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. Sports and Entertainment For those who follow Keanu Reeves closely, you may remember one of his movies called Johnny Mnemonic. The movie was based on a science fiction short story of the same name, written by William Gibson and first published in Omni Magazine in May 1981. Omni Magazine was a science and science fiction magazine containing articles on science, parapsychology, and short works on science fiction and fantasy. Initially a print magazine, its first e-magazine was published on CompuServe in 1986, before transitioning to a fully online presence in 1996. The publication ended in late 1997. Johnny Mnemonic was well received by readers and was included in a collection of short stories called Burning Chrome by William Gibson, published in 1986. This short story introduced cyberpunk to science fiction, with Gibson credited with the development of the subgenre. Cyberpunk is characterized by advanced technology and dystopic, disintegrating societies, including a dark, pessimistic vision of the future, with a writing style seen in hard detective novels. William Gibson began writing this short story in 1977, completing it in 1981. The premise of the story involves implantation of data storage systems into the main character's head. If you consider that the first personal computers weren't sold until the mid to late 1970s, this short story was very advanced for its time. The main plot of the story, without spoiling the ending for those who would like to read it after listening to this podcast, involves Johnny Mnemonic, a data trafficker. After undergoing cybernetic surgery to have a data storage system embedded in his head, he begins to make a living transporting sensitive data for corporations, crime rings, and wealthy individuals. The story begins with Johnny meeting Ralphie Face, his most recent customer who is late in recovering his data Johnny has stored. Unbeknownst to Johnny, Ralphie's data was stolen from the Yakuza who do not want the data to be revealed. The remainder of the story is Johnny trying to outmaneuver the Yakuza assassins who are trying to kill him while he simultaneously attempts to get the data out of his head. The story raised questions that still linger today about the invasion of privacy in people's lives by government and corporations through technology. One character, Molly Millions, goes on to play a prominent role in William Gibson's famous Sprawl trilogy novels. Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. The short story and its world was so popular that a spin-off movie was released on May 26, 1995, starring Keanu Reeves as the title character Johnny Smith. It was directed by Robert Longo and by Don Carmody and was shot on location in Canada. Sony ImageSoft also released a computer game by the same name in 1995 with the goal to find the missing download code before the Yakuza apprehends you. For those who enjoy cyberpunk or for those who would like to experience cyberpunk for the first time, Johnny Mnemonic will take you back to the early days of the cyberpunk genre to where it all started. Science and Technology 
The age-old question that every child asks, why is the sky blue? The reason is due to a phenomenon called Rayleigh scattering, discovered by John William Strutt, the third Baron of Rayleigh. He was born two months premature on November 12, 1842, in Langford Grove, Essex, England, to Clara Elizabeth and John James Strutt, the second Baron of Rayleigh. As a child, Strutt briefly attended Eton College until he had to withdraw due to a mild case of smallpox. He then attended school at Wimbledon Common before joining Harrow at the age of 14. He again became sick while at Harrow, causing him to withdraw in his second term. Due to his poor health, he started private studies under Reverend George Townsend Warner in 1857 and would stay under his tutorage for the next four years. In 1861, he started at the University of Cambridge, studying mathematics at Trinity College. He did well, earning the honors of Senior Wrangler, the top mathematics undergraduate at Cambridge, as well as winning the Smith Prize, awarded annually to two research students in math and theoretical physics at Cambridge. One of the Smith's prizes is now called the Rayleigh Knight Prize. After earning a master's in 1868, he was elected to a fellowship of Trinity, which he held until his marriage in 1871 to Evelyn Balfour. Again, health caught up to him, as that same year he experienced an attack of rheumatic fever that almost took his life. Following his recovery, Rayleigh and his wife Evelyn traveled to Egypt for his recuperation, taking a houseboat journey on the Nile. During this trip, he started work on his important book, The Theory of Sound. Strutt's early scientific papers were on topics that included electromagnetism, color, and sound. His most noteworthy early works was his theory explaining why the sky was blue. The theory, which discusses that the color is due to scattering of sunlight by small particles in the atmosphere, evolved into the Rayleigh scattering law which is now studied by students learning about wave propagation. In 1873, Strutt inherited the barony of Rayleigh and moved into his residence at Turling Place. Wanting to continue his scientific research, he built a laboratory next to the manor at Turling Place. In 1876, he delegated the management of his family's estate land to his younger brother, allowing him to devote his full time to the science that he loved. Some of his work during this time included the description of dynamic soaring of seabirds, published in 1883 in the British journal Nature, and he also developed the duplex theory of human sound localization around 1900. For those who are curious, this theory described how humans are able to use two cues for sound localization. The first is the difference in the sinusoidal or wave components of sound, and the second is the difference of amplitude or loudness between the ears. During World War II, Strutt was appointed president of the government's advisory committee for aeronautics due to the papers he published on the soaring of birds. His first report from his committee established the way for wind tunnel tests for flying machine models. During his career, he won many awards and he was also among the first recipients of the Order of Merit, which he received from King Edward VII at Buckingham Palace on August 8, 1902. Perhaps his biggest single contribution to science, though, was his discovery and isolation of one of the rarest gases of the atmosphere, argon, for which he won a Nobel Prize in Physics. 
By using precision measurement, Rayleigh discovered that the density of nitrogen in the atmosphere was slightly higher than the density of nitrogen from one of its chemical compounds, such as ammonia. Thanks in part to observations from 18th century scientist Henry Cavendish, he discovered that this discrepancy in density was due to an undetected constituent in the atmosphere. After a long experimental program, he succeeded in isolating this constituent in 1895, which was named argon, from the Greek word for inactive. He shared this finding with chemist William Ramsey, who was able to also isolate the new gas and won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry the same year. Along with discovering the gas, Rayleigh also wrote the entry on argon in the 10th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Rayleigh had several other contributions in science, several of which are named after him, including Rayleigh waves, Rayleigh flow, and the Rayleigh genes law, which played an important role in the birth of quantum mechanics. His textbook, The Theory of Sound, which was published in 1877, is still used by engineers today and is likely the most important book in acoustical literature. Perhaps what many remember about him though was his ability to write clearly and simply so that even those without mathematical backgrounds could appreciate his results. An example can be found in the opening of a paper he wrote in 1918 which described the effects of surface contaminants on friction between solids. This quote was also published in the Journal of Lubrication article by Duncan Dowson. He wrote, a cup of tea standing in a dry saucer is apt to slip about in an awkward manner for which a remedy is found in the introduction of a few drops of water or tea wetting the parts in contact. The explanation is not obvious and I remember discussing the question with Kelvin many years ago but with little progress. Rayleigh would pass his love of science to his oldest son who would become a famous physicist and the fourth baron of Rayleigh. Unfortunately, the youngest of his three sons died of a spinal disease while preparing to take the bar. Rayleigh himself died on June 30, 1919 at Turling Place in Essex, England. A memorial tablet was unveiled at Westminster Abbey on November 30, 1921, and on it reads, An unerring leader in the advancement of natural knowledge. Geography and World Culture Hot summers, mild winters, mountains, water. If this sounds like the type of destination that you would love, then you may want to add Achaia, Greece to your destination research list. Achaia, located in western Greece in the northwestern portion of the Peloponnese Peninsula, is not just known for its beautiful scenery and climate though. It also played an important part in Greek history. Before we talk about what you might see if you visit Achaia today, let's jump back in time and learn a little bit more about its history. Achaia was a site of the foundation of the Achaean League in 280-281 to BC. The Achaean League, an association of city-states, was initially formed by 12 cities in Achaia. It was created to reduce Macedonian rule in the area and would become the chief political power in Greece. The primary obligation of members was to contribute warriors to the League's collective army. After Macedonian's defeat by the Romans in the early 2nd century BC, the League was able to defeat the weakened Spartans and take control over the entire Peloponnese Peninsula. 
The Romans in the Battle of Corneth eventually defeated the Achaeans in 146 BC during the Achaean War and the victors dissolved the League. After the Fourth Crusade, many new states were created in Greece, one of which was the Principality of Achaea, founded in 1205, covering a much larger area than traditional Achaea. In 1430, Achaea was recaptured by the Byzantine Empire, becoming part of the Despotate of the Moria, until it fell to the Ottoman Empire in 1460. The Republic of Venice then seized Achaea in 1687 until the Ottoman Empire recaptured it in 1715. All of Achaea was finally liberated and joined Greece during the Greek War of Independence in the early 19th century. Today, Achaea contains approximately one-third of the population of Peloponnese, with the majority living near or within its capital, Patras. Traveling through Achaea can be done by car, bus, or train, with several towns and historic sites to keep visitors busy during their stay. Patras, named after King Patrias, who ruled Achaea around 1100 BC, was founded in 1800. During the Greek War of Independence, the Turks destroyed it and it was rebuilt in the 19th century. For those who visit the city, there are several sites to see, including the Agios Andreas Cathedral, a modern basilica built in the Byzantine style, which is the largest church in Greece. It stands on the site where the Apostle Andrew would have been put to death and contains relics of St. Andrew who brought Christianity to Patras and is the patron saint of the city. For those who love engineering, the Rio Ontario Bridge, located near Patras, is the largest cable-stayed bridge in the world. Opening in 2004, the 2,880-meter bridge connects Peloponnese with the mainland. It also contains over 100 sensors, which can measure anything from seismic tremors to the deck's thermal expansion. Another interesting site is the Roman Odeon, a Roman conservatory for musical performances built in the 1st century AD during the rule of Emperor August. It was accidentally rediscovered in 1889, with restoration completed in 1956. Today, it is used yearly for the Patras International Festival. Now, if you're interested in seeing one of Europe's largest carnivals, travel to Patras between January 17th and Clean Monday, the first day of Great Lent on the Orthodox calendar. The carnival includes masked balls, games, and parades, ending with a treasure hunt in the Grand Parade with satirical floats on the final Sunday. A more somber place to visit is Kalavita, located in the mountainous area of Achaea. People from all over travel to Kalavita to pay their respects to those tragically killed in the massacre of 1943 during World War II. The massacre started at 9 a.m. on December 13, 1943, when German soldiers arrived in the small Greek village, ordering all villagers to assemble at the local school. The women and children were locked in the schoolhouse and men were driven to a nearby hillside. The town was burned to ashes and few men survived. Today, the same schoolhouse where the women and children were in prison hosts the Kalavitra Holocaust Museum, established in 2005. Fifty years later, the president of Germany, Johannes Rau, visited Kalavitra and per an article by Agalos Gordas in the Greek City Times said of his visit, 
I came here to keep the memory of this event alive in Germany. Here, at this place, I feel immense grief and shame. The only one who knows and accepts his part can find the path to a better future. A monastery located approximately 5 kilometers from Calavitra is called Aia Lavra. Built in 961 at an altitude of 961 meters, it once housed 961 monks and contains a huge library of 10,000 volumes from the 12th century. It also was the location of the beginning of the Greek War of Independence. For those who love the outdoors, Achaia also has beautiful beaches and has two skiing resorts in the mountains. Whether you enjoy beaches, mountains, or cities, Achaia Greece has it all, along with a remarkable history to learn on your travels. Today's Random Topic Most people have heard of the sport football whether it's the one where you kick the ball or throw the ball. But how many people would know what the sport footbag is when asked? For those in high school and college in the 1980s and 1990s, you may remember kicking around a small bean-filled sack known as a footbag or a hacky sack. This is the basis of the sport footbag. John Stahlberger and Mike Marshall invented the modern-day sport footbag back in the early 1970s in Oregon City, Oregon. Stahlberger had traveled to Oregon City on vacation in 1972 when he happened to meet Marshall at a festival. Marshall introduced him to kicking a beanbag around, which he had been taught by a Native American while in the military. Stahlberger, who was recovering from a knee injury at the time, found that not only did he enjoy the game, but that it also improved his rehabilitation from his injury. The two friends spent the next year and a half perfecting the beanbag design, finally settling on a rounded two-panel shape filled with plastic pellets. They trademarked it Hacky Sack and established the generic name for the sport as Footbag. Unfortunately, before the game took hold, Mike Marshall passed away at the age of 28 in 1975 from a heart attack in his sleep, presumed to be due to a blood clot. Stahlberger continued to promote the game, forming the National Hacky Sack Organization before selling the rights to the Hacky Sack in 1983 to WAMO for a six-figure sum. The sport became popular nationwide in the 1980s and especially spread across campuses and high schools in the United States and moved throughout the world. The game itself is based on ancient kicking games from China, Japan, the Philippines, and other Far East nations. Today, there are several different sports that fall under the umbrella of footbag. The two most popular are freestyling footbag and footbag net. Freestyling footbag typically uses a 32-panel bag filled with a variety of filling material to include plastic poly pellets, sand, BBs, steel or lead shot, seed bead, and tungsten shot. The bags weigh between 40 and 65 grams and are typically made with fabrics that are more fragile than the crochet bags used in circle kicking. Footbag freestyling typically consists of choreographed routines to music and are judged on presentation, difficulty, variety, and execution. In footbag net, which uses a bag with a harder outer surface, players must kick the ball back and forth across a net similar to volleyball, except using only their feet and lower legs. 
The game is played with either one or two players per side, and scoring is similar to volleyball, with points only scored by the serving team. Footbag is organized today by the International Footbag Players Association, which was created in 1994 under the name Worldwide Footbag Foundation. According to their website, it is a volunteer-run charitable nonprofit corporation dedicated to the growth of footbag play worldwide as lifetime recreation and as an amateur competitive sport. Annual competitions are held in various footbag sports to include footbag freestyling and footbag net. So why play footbag? In an article by Quinn Myers published by Mail Magazine entitled Meet the Hacky Sack Packs Determined to Bring Hacky Sack Back. She quotes a 19-year-old University of Colorado Boulder who goes by Sakurai. You only need one person, though I tend to prefer playing it with a group, and you can bring it anywhere, he tells Mel. So my friends and I would play if we were waiting in line or waiting for food somewhere. That way we were always active and connecting. I think it's a great way to get people off their phones. While the game is not as popular as it once was, it still has an active following. If you would like to get into this game, all you need is a footbag and a pair of sneakers. And a good place to start learning tricks is at www.footbag.org. One day you could find yourself competing in the Footbag World Championships. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show note blog posts on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. You can also find a sneak peek about next week's episode there. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. I look forward to our new adventures next week where we learn about two supercomputers and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote by Jim Butcher in his book, White Knight. Knowledge is the ultimate weapon. It always has been. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.